Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Wall Street had its worst week since the start of the pandemic on fears of inflation as the Fed raises rates to cope with the sheer volume of money sloshing around the U.S. economy thanks to successive waves of pandemic relief. The rollout of 5G connectivity has been delayed over concerns. Uh, The new technology will interfere with the avionics of older jetliners. British Airbus workers threaten strike over pay joining German workers who struck last year. The spat between the European jet maker got more acrimonious with Qatar last week, a new documentary about Boeing's 737 MAX. Germany again begins eyeing the F-35 and what that means for Berlin's participation in the SCAF combat aircraft program with France and Spain. And talks continue as Russian forces remain poised to invade Ukraine. And after three relatively quiet years, North Korea is back to testing missiles. The Omicron wave appears to have crested, but more than 865,000 Americans and 5.6 million worldwide have died since the start of the COVID pandemic. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent research firm Agency Partners in London, Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy of Sunny Ann Arbor and Washington, D.C. Everybody, welcome back to the program. That's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yes, thanks so much, Vago. Great to be back on, Vago. Thanks. Uh, absolute pleasure. Uh, and before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Huntington Ingalls Industries and Raytheon Missiles and Defense sponsored our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium uh, that was in Northern Virginia recently. Check out our coverage and also check out our two weekly podcasts. Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters each week, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, as I said, welcome back. Always a pleasure having you on. Ron, worst week on Wall Street since the start of the pandemic. Mar- markets were um, perfectly happy to be lavished with money. Uh, and when they were, and also saw surging profits, but after years of pro-growth, light touch monetary policy, now that inflation is raging because there is too much money chasing too few goods, you know, you sent an excellent uh, piece uh, to all of us uh, just last night, I think, um, talking about a, a, a Barron's piece saying that Milton Friedman was right in the 1970s. Um, the, the trouble is that now that the Fed is talking about pumping the brakes, it's kind of causing a panic, as absurd as that sounds, um, given that markets, I guess, ultimately are driven by selfishness. Talk to us about the week on uh, Wall Street and how the group performed uh, in, in, relation, in, in relation to the broader volatile week. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was the, the, the worst week. I know that was reported. Um, um, it was a bad week, for sure. I don't know if it was the worst week. If you kind of go back in time to the beginning of the this whole mess. It was, it was pretty bad before. Um, however, if you look at market performance, you know, one of the things that, you know, you know, tends to pop up when the market starts getting a little bit squirrely is the VIX index. The VIX is, you know, a, a, a measure of volatility in the market. It's been quote unquote, the fear index. If you go back over the last year, it's, it's approaching its highs um, where, you know, the VIX is um, almost at 30. Um, it's been running around 15 at its, at its lows. So you saw volatility pick up in the market for sure. Um, interestingly enough, right? So you know, 
the the way I, I think some of the the more popular financial press has been talking about the market, you know, the sphere of rates going up. And, you know, as you know, on the podcast, we've been talking about rates for a while, but the 10 year yield actually, it went up, but then came back down a little bit this week, right? So it ended the week lower than in its peak, but on the week, um, it was up, we're just a, a smidge below 1.8, which is as high as it's been in, in quite some time, but, you know, 1.8% for 10 year money is still uh, from any historical measure, pretty, pretty low. So if you look at uh, you know the, the performance of the, the A and D stocks for the week, um, the, you know Boeing as a bellwether for commercial aerospace, Boeing was down about eight and a half percent on the week. Uh, the S and P five hundred was down about five and a half percent. Northrop Grumman, uh, as a as a measure of you know, pure play defense, it was flat on the week. It outperformed, but where you really saw some you know crazy moves were in some of the the more tech oriented and um, early stage companies. So, you know, Joby Aviation, uh, the eVTOL manufacturer, they were down almost 25% on the week. Um, Palantir um, was down almost 16% on the week. Uh, and then interestingly enough, Raytheon Technologies, which is sort of really splits, you know, splits the difference between commercial and defense, was down about 4% on the week, just kind of cut Boeing in half. And, and that's where you ended up with Raytheon. But so broadly, defense outperformed the market. Commercial was doing a little bit worse in the market. And the market was really unhappy with risky assets. Um, and the, you know, the early stage companies, the companies that have their cash flows far out in the future are the ones that really got hit the hardest. And you know, maybe the theory behind that is if you're in a rising rate environment and your cash flows are farther out in the future, those cash flows are worth less today because of the interest rates going up. Sash, I see that your hand is up, but I'm going to come to you in just a second. I got to ask uh, Ron this question. W what do we expect from earnings, Ron? Uh, obviously, Boeing is going to report this week uh, as well. I, I messed that up last week where I said Boeing would report uh, last Wednesday. They're reporting this coming Wednesday. Um, and we've also seen the Boeing uh, documentary Downfall by the uh, filmmaker Rory Kennedy that uh, aired uh, at, at Sundance. Just your sense on where you expect earnings to take us and how this documentary is likely to impact uh, investors, and and like to get your take, uh, everybody's take on that as well. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, sure. So if you look at this week, all the all the majors um, uh, uh, report this week, and then some of the the smaller mid cap companies. Um, so uh, the week really kicks off uh, with Raytheon and Lockheed uh, early in the week, Boeing's in the middle of the week, Boeing and General Dynamics midweek. And then uh, later in the week, uh, we have you know, Northrop Grumman and uh, Textron uh, and some other names. So it's a, it's a big earnings week for uh, A&D. Uh, so it'll really set the tone um, for, for the group. Um, so Monday, Monday's a key day because you know, Lockheed reports, excuse me, Tuesday is a big day because Lockheed reports Tuesday and Lockheed will really set the tone for defense um, as they typically do. Uh, okay, so that being said, you know, back, you know, back to the documentary. Um, yeah, got the chance to watch it, and you know, for those of us who've been following this, since, you know, since the the saga, since the beginning, there wasn't a heck of a lot new there. It was a nice kind of recap of what was going on, and um, you know, sort of you know, kind of critiquing it. I mean, just kind of a recap of what happened. Um, so there was not of a heck of a lot new there. But I would say this: um, the documentary is you know got bought by Netflix, so it's going to be on Netflix. And you know, Boeing in particular, when you look at a lot of the, the large cap stocks I cover, has a large retail ownership. Um, so if you have you know, re, a, a, a retail group watching it on Netflix, 
Um, I can't imagine that it's going to be great for Boeing stock from a retail perspective. Uh, to institutional investors, if they've been doing their homework, they kind of know what she laid out in, in, the, in the documentary. But um, it, you know, from a, a perception of the Boeing company perspective to the retail investor, I, I can't imagine it's going to be great. Uh, and more uh, broadly, uh, do you expect any earnings surprises from any of the companies, right? I mean, are there any warning signs from anybody, or do you think that uh, uh, folks are going to hit their consensus marks and and maybe just let the audience know what those consensus marks are at this point? Yeah, so uh, I, I think the thing we all have to keep an eye on, and you know, I'm interested to get Sasha's view on this for the Europeans because I can't imagine it's very different. Is if if they're going to be surprises, and there most certainly will be because there always are. That's why they're surprises, right? We don't expect them, um, right? But and, and they happen, right? So well, they're good, right? On your birthday, you expect a surprise, right? A good, good yeah. maybe a positive surprise. So my my sense is it'll be more around supply chain broadly, and you know, supply chain covers everything from you know raw material costs, labor costs, logistics right. costs. You know, probably on defense, it's going to be more around logistics costs and. And, and some labor disruption on the commercial side, it might be more labor cost, all of the above, right? So if there's any surprises, I think it's going to be around that. Now, from an end market perspective, I think we all kind of understand where defense is and what's going on there in terms of the demand function. Uh, and even on commercial, I think we all have a pretty good idea of what's going on there. There's probably some variability uh, in the aftermarket, particularly you know, given you know the, the 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 dynamic, the interplay between Delta and Omicron and air traffic and airplanes going back into service, there might be some volatility in aftermarket demand. Uh, but I think the real question for everything, and you know, I think you probably see this across a lot of sectors, uh, but in particular in our sector, is uh, going to be uh, the supply chain uh, headwinds. Uh, Sash, uh, let me uh, let me let me go over uh, to you, right? I mean, what was driving European markets? We've got uh, talk about an Airbus UK strike, um, and uh, you know, earnings earnings going to be reported shortly by European uh, firms uh, as well. Uh, and take it take it away in any direction you want to take it. Okay, yeah, I'm first. I mean, European markets actually had a slightly better week than uh, last week than uh, the US did. It was really only on Friday that some of the um, issues associated with inflation. Uh, started started to catch up with European markets. I mean, you know, European aerospace and defence down about a percent and a half on Friday. Um, with uh, probably this, well, I'd like to say this. You know, there, there was a sort of difference between civil and, and defence stocks. Um, certainly, some of the defence stocks are starting to trade better as the possibility of um, conflict in the Ukraine just gets gets higher. But yeah, most of them, as I said, most of them were off sort of point and a half, possibly two points. To, I mean, two interesting issues. And if you look at Boeing's underperformance, well, last week, let alone this year, you know, Boeing's off eight and a half, well, eight and a half percent this week and a good sort of 10 percent plus for the year. Airbus is off less than 10, uh, less than 10 euros, down from 121 to, uh, um, uh, to 113. Uh, and I do wonder whether part of that is a um, uh, you know, some sort of awareness that uh, Airbus has got a, the upper hand in terms of the middle of the market at the moment and probably has got the, the better deliveries outlook near term. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, there's a, there's a strike threat in, in the UK as there has been in, uh, as there has been in uh, Germany. I, these things, I think, will get negotiated away. I think it would be very unusual for 
Airbus actually have a UK strike. If they do, then you know, all, all bets are off for the first quarter because uh, that switches off the entire supply of wings in the system, with the exception of a, of a handful of the uh, A220. But you know, I, I think this is certainly evidence of, of broader inflationary um, uh, pressures. Earning surprises. Where do we expect earning surprises? I, yeah, I think supply chain, but actually I think also just companies that are experiencing, particularly in continental Europe, uh, heavy levels of Omicron absenteeism. You know, people who have either got Omicron or whose families have and therefore are having to self-isolate. I talked to a couple of companies last week and they sort of rather sheepishly just admitted they don't have as many people working in the factories at the moment as they expected. It's making it hard for them to hit their uh, monthly uh, deliveries forecast, or if you're a you know an, an overhaul business, actually to induct the aircraft or the engines that you should be doing at this time of year. And this is very much the hot time of year for repair and overhaul. So I think that's going to be the um, uh, the issue. I suspect most companies will be a bit cautious about the uh, outlook for the first quarter, possibly even second quarter. And I think that if they stick to the guidance they already have, it's more likely to be with a caveat. It's going to be second, much more second half weighted than usual. Just one other point that, uh, that I wanted to highlight, you know, and I'd be really interested in sort of Ron's take around this. We've had uh, quite a lot of discussions with our clients about the different uh, messaging that came out from broadly the Pratt & Whitney uh, partners and the General Electric partners. Now in Europe, that's predominantly MTU aero engines on the one hand and, and Safran on the other hand, about their two narrowbody engines. Um, uh, you know, the surprise for us with MTU is they, they said at their capital markets day last November, uh, and I paraphrase, we are doing a ton of uh, overhaul work for the geared turbofan engine now. It's only going to go up. It's you know, going to be about 40% of uh, MTU's overhaul turnover, which is huge for an engine that was only started to be delivered six years ago and where the average age of the fleet is 2.7 years. Uh, and by contrast, Safran is saying, we're not going to see any repair and overhaul, very little G uh, leap spares for the equivalent narrowbody engine until middle of the decade or beyond that. I just wonder whether there is something wrong with the gear turbofan and hence they are having to do more precautionary overhaul work i.e. the engine is less is is more efficient, but the trade-off has been uh, lower reliability, whereas LEAP is actually less efficient, but more reliable. I think that, I mean, that's going to be one of the key questions we've got. And it's been a real issue that we've had a lot of clients uh, comment about this year, this week. I should also have said as we were going into this, uh, Sash, that you're one of the people who has uh, a, uh, a birthday-like uh, surprise zeal uh, when you go into earnings season, I, I know that uh, that excitement uh, on your part is palpable with each uh, with each <laughs> earnings disclosure. After all these years, after all these years, you've maintained it's, that. It's charming, isn't it? It's absolutely it charming. The childlike wonder uh, with. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, oh the dread! Oh the dread I had as a reporter covering those. Oh Lord Almighty! Um, Richard, you've been very, very patient. Let's uh, bring you into this, right? Um, we have some positive uh, trends, right? As we are uh, coming out of uh, Omicron, uh, even though I think the entire commercial aviation system is sort of grappling uh, with this. I want to get, but you know, there are wild cards. There are always wild cards, right? I mean, this 5G thing, uh, I think ultimately is likely to not have that much impact. I'm sort of curious whether or not, you know, I mean, it's astonishing to me that the 
Federal Communications Commission and the Federal Aviation Administration didn't appear to have any conversations about this. So that just as we're debuting, you know, AT&T and Verizon are debuting 5G, all of a sudden it's a problem, you know, for avionics. Uh, Ron, you know, just before we talked, uh, Ron, you you explained sort of the French solution, just dial down 5G, um, uh, around airports to sort of resolve re- resolve the problem as, as folks work uh, other fixes. But we have other complications, right? Beijing is re- restricting American Delta and United from flying to China because there were a couple of COVID cases. Uh, and the U.S. is retaliating against Chinese uh, carriers. Um, you know, R- R- Richard, kind of take us, take us away in any direction, comment on anything anybody else said, including uh, on the Boeing film and how you feel it changes anything or nothing. Yeah, much to discuss, um, and I certainly want to get back to uh, you know Sasha's understandable sense of uh, well, almost a birthday day like wonder at turbines. Uh, <laughs> I too would like to discuss that. <laughs> I, I share that. Uh, I share that passion for turbines. Um, you know, first and foremost, it's hard to believe for a minute that this uh, the Chinese flight issue between the U.S. and and China have really anything to do with. The, the disease. I mean, it, it looks like just another front in the series of hopefully not decoupling, but decoupling light, you know, uh, bad marriage without possibility of a divorce back and forth and, and on the trade front and sadly on the aviation front between uh, the U.S. and China showing up in places like the Olympics, showing up in supply chain, showing up at the theater near you everywhere. Um, I, you know, having said that, yeah, I mean, it looks like it's a house of cards, zero COVID policy in China. They don't have a particularly effective vaccine. Um, We know that Omicron tends, once it establishes a foothold, there's no stopping it. Uh, The idea of saying, ah, we're going to lock down this city. Yeah, no. So I, I tend to think it's just a matter of time. And, you know, the Chinese will sadly experience uh, what we've experienced. On the happy front, it sure looks like from all the data that uh, once it crests, it crests. And, you know, looking at South Africa, looking at Britain, even starting to look over here in some states, uh, things crest down. And, you know, we'll, when we get the traffic data in a couple months for this time now, uh, we will probably see exactly the kind of momentary downward fish hook that we saw with Delta back in uh, August, September. It won't, you know, the linear process of recovery will remain intact. I'm not overly worried about that, nor am I overly worried about 5G. You know, it, it's it's been fascinating to watch. A colleague and friend of mine at Aerodynamic, Mike Stengel, became an expert because he knew exactly everything and, and quickly came up with a whole bunch of charts and, and slides and whatever for clients. It was sort of fascinating to see. And I was just grateful I didn't have to do it because I know none of this, but it, it the end conclusion was they're gonna find a solution. It's, it's not gonna be more, it's not gonna be a crisis that lasts more than a couple of weeks with the inevitable rounds of finger pointing and blame gaming. Uh, finally, very interesting to hear Sasha's comments about turbines. Yes, uh, I share that enthusiasm. And, you know, going back 10 years when these engines got started, it was actually the opposite. Uh, you know, the feeling was that one, one side, the geared turbofan side took, of course, a relatively radical architecture change with the addition of a gearbox, whereas the other side said, no, plenty of runway with conventional, the conventional architecture, we're just changing the materials and uh, turning up right. the heat, turning up the wick, turning up the pressure, you know, and that in theory should have resulted in greater need for maintenance. You know, 
I think a lot of people in the turbine world were thinking, all right, that's that's going to show up in terms of greater maintenance obligations. So it's the exact opposite. The only thing I can say is that there have been a whole host of modifications introduced to the geared turbofan that I think have made it a much better engine, but they are substantial, you know, to remediate uh, issues they had with reliability up front. So I have a feeling people are bringing them into the shops, not necessarily because it's time or because there's major problems, just because there are upgrades associated with the original production batch right. that need to be implemented. And, and uh, we should point out, right, I mean, Pratt and all the engine makers have made a point of, you know, every time you bring the engine back, that's an opportunity for us because of modular design to put a whole bunch of uh, updates uh, and upgrades, not just on the engine control box, but uh, uh, other other elements. Um, right. Ron, let me, is that is that it, Richard? Uh, because I was yes, going to hop. We've got other other hands up, uh, Ron. Uh, if you want to take uh, a little bit of a bite on the on the five G Apple, uh, right? I mean, not not that big a deal, even if it's ultimately grabbing headlines. And Sash, I know you've got a follow up as well. Yeah, I mean, in the end, sadly, you know, it's you know, what was the movie? Um, I, you know, it was a Cool Hand Luke, uh, where uh, one of the guards, the sheriff, said, uh, "What we have here is a failure to communicate." Um, I think in the end, um, that, that's kind of what happened between the FAA and the FCC. And, you know, the FAA is just, you know, doing its job, uh, making sure that everything checks out. Um, you know, radio altimeters can be uh, sensitive to this stuff. Uh, but bear in mind, you know, 5G has been rolled out in uh, many other countries around the world. Um, uh, as you mentioned earlier, it's you know, in France, as an example. Um, and it'll be rolled out here. Um, but it's just, you know, that the DFAA's mandate is to make sure it gets done safely. Um, and had the two agencies, you know, you know hindsight's always twenty twenty, been better coordinated, maybe, you know, this hubbub wouldn't have happened, but there's nothing here that's a showstopper. It might require um, some older aircraft to do some updates to their radio, radio altimeters. Um, and then on some other aircraft, like 787 and the 777, um, the architecture of the avionics is a little more complicated and the FAA just wanted to make sure everything there is okay. And that's why those aircraft garnered a little more attention, but it's, it's not something that can't be worked out and it's just going to take some time. Um, I, I, uh, Sash, uh, I want to go to you. I mean, R Richard, great uh, description. I have to get your uh, Boeing uh, Donfall uh, views uh, as, as well, but um you know, one of the challenges has been the introduction of a gearbox, right? That it was a leap ahead power plant, uh, whereas General Electric did take it. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I thought it, the General Electric was the one who was playing it safer than Pratt & Whitney was in terms of introducing a gearbox, even though it was potentially higher payoff and more uh, efficient. And there was a lot of confidence that we could get gearboxes right, even though it is a complexity, uh, given where gas turbines have been. You have a wider and deeper concern, don't you, Sash, that goes to the business case uh, of the entire thing, don't you? Yeah, I mean, two points. First of all, talking to companies that are involved on the gear to turbofan program, both at, at the OEM level, i.e. they provide uh, components, subsystems, very, very large subsystems, and also uh, at the repair and overhaul level. And the, 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 they're, they're actually two different groupings, interestingly. There are many more people involved in the repair and overhaul network than there are at the OEM level. Uh, the problem isn't actually the gearbox. The gearbox seems to work fine. The problem appears to be in the hot section. Um, and that's why Pratt had to redesign the combustor. That's why uh, there was a problem with the low pressure turbine. That's why there's been a problem with, uh, with seals um, as well. And there's also been a, a bearings problem. So actually the gearbox has not been the issue. And 
if I had, and that, that I think is a, you know, that's a concern because it means that Pratt in particular may well have not quite got the, um, uh, the reliability of the hot section right because they, I suspect they spent a huge amount of time getting the gearbox right. Um, the reason why there's a problem with the business model is that a big proportion, particularly of gear turbo fans, but also Leafs, but a, a small proportion of Leaf engines, a big proportion have been sold under fleet tower agree, uh, flight tower agreements, where the airline pays the OEM a um, fixed amount per either per flight tower or by uh, or per month. Um, and when the overhaul comes around, then that's all uh, uh, carried out within those costs. A flight tower agreement incentivizes the OEM very, very heavily to push the overhauls out and make sure that the overhauls cost as little as possible. If the overhauls cost as little as possible, i.e. it's a very reliable engine that doesn't burn itself up, doesn't lose its uh, margins very quickly, then they make good money on, on that overhaul, despite the fact they don't sell very many spare parts. If, on the other hand, the overhauls are occurring every 2.7 years, which is what's clearly happening at the moment, um, certainly with this, this first generation, um, uh, or first stage of overhauls, and you're swapping out big parts, combustors, low pressure turbines, and so forth, um, even if it's just seals, you're going to make a, a huge amount less money. Your business model is set up to do no more than three overhauls for the entire life of this engine, and that's 25 years, say. If you end up doing four by mistake, you've, you've blown the business model. And that, that this is what's sort of puzzling me, and it's puzzling a lot of our clients at the about the difference in messages coming out from the, uh, the, the two engines. So there's no doubt the gear turbo fan is, a, is the more efficient engine at the moment, but it certainly isn't uh, more reliable. It's cost, and that costs the OEMs in a way that it would have not, have, not have done for previous generations. Richard, um, have you weigh in on that and give us your views on uh, 737 before we uh, move on the 737 movie uh, and what you think the impact is or is not going to be. Uh, and then I want to get into the discussion. And Sash, I'm going to come back to you on, on uh, F-35 and, and Germany. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure how much of the GTF issues in terms of shop visits are scheduled, necessary, and going to continue as a pattern and how much of them are just, as we were saying before, just you know, taking advantage of the opportunity to upgrade again per Vago, given the modular nature of the design and all the changes that have been made in terms of reliability and et cetera. So not overly worried about that, but, you know, an understandable concern nevertheless. Um, in terms of downfall, I thought it was, uh, it was a very, you know, it was well presented. Certainly it was a well-made movie. Um, the one narrative that I think is still out there, which I find strange, and this is across the board is that the 737 MAX was a fundamentally bad idea. Yes, there was, as Ron once memorably said, uh, a flaw inserted inside a good product. I think that was the term, and uh, it's, a, it's a very good way of saying it, but the idea that there's this greedy corporation that decided to do an upgrade rather than um, you know, a completely new clean sheet design, I, I think most people thought, yeah, look, it, all we need is a new turbine. This is a fuel price thing, and there are new turbines available, just do it. Uh, obviously, the whole upgauge thing didn't become evident until the, you know, five years later when the 321neo really began to take off. Until then, I think it was uh, the right call, and it wasn't a manifestation of greed. There were plenty of other manifestations of greed, that's for sure. Um, the other thing, of course, is, you know, Dennis Muhlenberg still continuing to be the deer in the headlights of the whole thing. But, you know, at the end of the day, he was put in this position for exactly this contingency, just like 
Jack Welch put Immelt in that position for that contingency. McNerney put Muhlenberg in this position to avoid flack for something that he had absolutely nothing to do with. So that part of the movie I found a little baffling, but it was a well-made film. Um, I uh, want to point out that Laurent Rouad, uh, who uh, spoke uh, at uh, the Bank of America uh, conference that uh, we uh, co-moderate with, uh, with Ron, uh, was a strategy guy at Airbus when the A321 uh, was, uh, or A320neo and A321 were being launched, uh, and then went on to General Electric, where he had a, a key strategy role on the engines uh, side of the business, pointed out, right, that the 737, he said the same thing you did, right, at, at our uh, conference, right, that uh, it's a really good airplanes, airplane, and in some cases is actually better than uh, Airbus. Uh, it's just that there were execution challenges with it uh, at the end of the day, right? I mean, Ron, same same kind of uh, answer uh, that that you've come up with. Yeah, absolutely, right? I mean, you know, the, the idea of re-engineering the airplane, um, you know, in and of itself wasn't a bad idea. It's just the uh, implementation of MCAS was really surprisingly awful, right? I mean, you know, one of the points that comes out in the movie and one of the points we all know is you had a single system with a single point of failure that had enough control authority to bring down the airplane. And oh, by the way, the pilots didn't know that system existed. So you you just kind of think about that broadly in the big picture, that's just mind numbing. You know, how can you put a system on an airplane that has that kind of control authority, not let the pilots know know it's there and have that system have a single point of failure on a angle of attack vein. And those veins, so sensors have, you know, in general, because it's a thing sticking out on the airplane, uh, don't have the best reliability anyway. So how, I mean, it, that piece of it, the engineering of it's just, just mind numbing, but you know, the concept of what they tried to do and even MCAS, if it had been um, done properly, um, isn't that radical an idea and shouldn't have been that complicated. That's the thing about it that's so mind-numbing is it wasn't a bad idea. And even MCAS wasn't a bad idea. Just the engineering was awful. Uh, in, in, indeed. Sash, uh, we, we've got a couple of minutes left and I want to focus on the defense uh, side uh, of uh, the equation. Obviously, one of the big stories is uh, whether the German government is going to go ahead with F-35. Obviously, this idea was raised uh, in order to replace the nuclear capable tornadoes. Uh, now that nobody else is operating the jet, Germany wants to retain the tactical uh, freefall nuclear uh, uh, weapon uh, delivery. Uh, per its agreement with the United States and one of its missions uh, under NATO, uh, the Dutch fall into that category, as do uh, the Italians and and the Turks. Um, Hence the need for an American nuclear qualified airplane. It was going to be the F-35. The Merkel government uh, at a time concerned about Donald Trump's uh, tenure uh, put a kibosh uh, on that. And obviously uh, the Merkel government did strike the deal with Emmanuel Macron and the Spanish government in order to do the SCAF uh, program. Uh, now we have a traffic light coalition in Germany. They are pragmatic. Uh, they want to deliver a defense capability without spending more money than they want to. Obviously, they want to redirect some investment uh, to the uh, German uh, commercial sector, even though I know that investment on SCAF benefits German defense suppliers, right? It, it may be a more economical way for you to be able to address your problem and get a better longer range future stealthy capability as opposed to just getting F-18s into inventory, even though they can carry the, the weapons as well. How, how does this play out? Because there are a lot of F-35 nations that are also developing future combat aircraft, right? 
Britain is leading the Tempest group with Italy, which is an F-35 operator. Uh, Interest in bringing the Japanese on, another F-35 operator. The Swedes obviously are part of Tempest. What does this do to the entire industrial dynamic? Is this messaging? Is it real capability? Richard and Ron want to get your take as well, because this would be a major development, obviously, if Germany goes down that route. Okay, I, I disagree with so many of the points that you've raised there. I'm going to have to be quite careful in, 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 in which ones I take on. Number one, free-form nuclear weapons is not a real capability. It is not an act of war. It is a piece of political gesturing. I can't, I've never met a pilot in the last 20 years who thought that free-form nuclear weapons was a real capability. But... You know, clearly, it's part of an of a wider NATO agreement. You, part of you NATO and I, family you, together. You, you so, and I agree. But, you and I agree on that, and a lot of other people do. The United States is yeah. still spending tens of billions of dollars upgrading the B sixty one weapon, exactly for that purpose. The political messaging of it and the uh, yeah. retaining of a nuclear capability across the NATO alliance. Yeah. Whether money, we think that's your, stupid your, or not, your money, your right to do that. Doing that with a tactical aircraft is a. Uh, you know, in particularly in a heavily air, def- uh, air defended uh, area, is um, not a, not a wise thing to do. That is Anglo-Saxon understand. Second issue. Um, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think the Rainbow Coalition in Germany, in fact, like coalition, is, is very interesting in that it does have a different approach to things. It, I mean, it is divided because the Free Democrats are clearly heavily in favour of German industry, and hence. Uh, putting everything in German industry. The Greens are traditionally anti-nuclear, but they don't seem to care very much about this issue at the moment. And uh, the Social Democrats, um, I agree with you, I, you know, I think would be, ha- would be prepared to do this to a degree if it, you know, if it got the US off their backs. Um, it, but you know, does this give a capability that is, wor- that is worth it? Um, I mean, my view would be if Germany buys the F-35, that is one of the things that kills SCAF. Now, I think the French could well walk out of the SCAF program anyway this year because they've decided that working with Germans and then not being able to export your product is just too much like hard work and that they can get a loan because particularly with the UAE um, uh, Rafale order, uh, but also, you know, remember, uh, they had foreign orders from uh, Egypt, Greece, uh, and also won a new customer, Croatia, this year. And they, they've actually got a combat aircraft franchise that's going to carry them through to the 2050s very comfortably. So I think SCAF is under an immense amount of pressure. Um, Tempest, uh, with the um, Anglo-Swedish-Italian program, Tempest is predicated in the UK on not buying any more F-35s. F-35 money gets spent on Tempest. And so the UK will buy, um, uh, you know, 48 to 60, probably 60. We need some, uh, you know, we've lost one already, so we're going to need some attrition buys, but it's nowhere near the 138 that we were committed to buy in the first place, uh, and the money gets diverted there. So it's very hard to have F-35 sit in budgetary terms alongside an advanced fourth-generation aircraft. The Italians are masters at this sort of budgetary juggling, but very few other nations in in Europe are. The UK certainly isn't. So it, it comes down to, what does the German, you know, is, does the German government really want this capability? Have they thought through what the industrial consequences are? Because the industrial consequences are that um, a big chunk of the German aerospace industry just ceases to function at the level it is at the moment because it won't have the prime contractor experience. It won't have the uh, assembly, uh, the repair and overhaul experience. It'll be, uh, you know, providing 
um, uh, you know, stick or, uh, stickers and landing gear doors and stuff for, for the wider F-35 program. That that takes you down a, a level. And this was, it was a realization of this that was one of the drivers for Tempest in the UK. Um, I'm, I, you know, I'm incredibly surprised that this issue has come up again, but I accept that the, you know, the Traffic Light Coalition is looking at things anew. Uh, but I think if they do, goodbye to SCAF. SCAF becomes a, a, a French or possibly a French-Spanish program and probably is a, is a better program with the consequence. Richard, your, your take on all that? Well, I agree completely that this helps kill SCAF. It's kind of ironic. I always thought SCAF was the stupidest idea since the A380. I mean, the whole concept of a Franco-German fighter jet, you know, one side, the whole sales point of buying a French fighter is that you don't need to ask permission to use it. The whole point of buying a German one is that you need to ask permission to use it. <laughs> Just the idea of that coalition was dumb. I didn't see this as the factor that killed it, but I'm, you know, whatever it takes, you know, it was just a dumb, unsupportable idea. I, I tend to think Tempest has far better traction, especially if the Germans go and join that as their next generation fighter aircraft, you know, with the project. Oh, oh hang, on, hang on, Richard. You mean, you mean we want the Germans to come and veto exports of Tempest? <laughs> that's, oh, that's a fair point I wouldn't wouldn't feel so confident in that but however however I would point out that while it represented issues there was enough of a legal carve out during the tornado and Eurofighter programs to prevent that from happening and of course the Correct. biggest single customer for both was Saudi Arabia so there are ways of doing it just not with the 50-50 joint program the way SCAF was in theory at least uh, heading towards if you however give the Germans 20% or 25% that's manageable from a risk standpoint because of course that's even less than with uh, Eurofighter or about the same as Eurofighter and uh, even less than Tornado so I don't think that's much of a problem. Now, what becomes of all the other, you know, concepts for, for fighters, does Tempest still play a role in, in Japan? I, I, I've never understood, you know, I mean, ultimately it could, but the Japanese still have the U.S. alliance. I still think if it is, if F3 does actually happen, uh, it'll be in cooperation with U.S. industry. That's probably the, the, the default setting. Um, and everything else out there, you know, obviously is, uh, is either set in stone or just not going to happen. It is interesting, however, this week, the Turks continue to move down this sort of vainglorious Erdogan-funded aerospace roadmap, including the standing up of a giant wind tunnel facility. They had these big pictures. It was like, wow, we haven't seen anything like that in the U.S. in ages. All this for an aircraft that is utterly stellar, except for the fact that it has absolutely no, no hope of having an engine, which, of course, is useful for takeoffs, landings, and everything in between. And this is also true. They unveiled the, the Herjet and started talking about serious production. It, too, just a great aircraft without an engine. This whole thing is daft. So, you know, that, that's sort of, I guess you could say that uh, Turkish plans for indigenous combat aircraft and trainer jets, kind of the joker in the back of the whole thing. They it hobbled by, again, some, you know, faux Ottoman excess. Um, I'm uh, surprised you couldn't get the word dumb uh, in there one more time, uh, Richard. I'm sort of dismayed. I was, I was waiting for it. Wait for it. Um, I have to Only get... And you were you were pulling your punches. God, anybody who knows you knows you spend way too much time pulling your punches. Um, Sash, any comment on the on the Turkish uh, aspirations uh, as as well as potentially Japanese aspirations or anybody else's aspirations you want to comment on? 
I thought it was very interesting that the uh, that Japan signed a an agreement with the UK about two or three weeks ago now to co-develop uh, the engine for um, uh, F3, and you know, the suggestion is that it will share a great deal in common with the engine for Tempest. Um, so they clearly were able, you know, identified some attractive technology. Uh, that the UK has and the UK is developing. And, and F3, you know, doesn't look dissimilar in some of its capabilities to Tempest. And so you would expect that uh, the, you know, an engine being developed for Tempest would have, or, uh, you know, would, would have some some attractions for Japan. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I don't think it's done dusted yet, but I agree, you know, the, it's, it's the US's to lose rather than uh, anybody else's to, to win. Um, I find the Turkish fighter aircraft. Now, I, you know, I, actually, I think that the challenge for the Turkish fighter aircraft is going to be in systems, the uh, systems integration in the weaponry, um, because I think that most recently developed countries can develop a, can develop an airframe. Oh, and I should have said the engine. I think the engine will be uh, challenging, but um, this is a a nation that is spending on national priorities, actually on national political priorities. But there again, that that's defence aerospace for us. Um, I do take the Turks quite seriously, though. I think they have transformed the, uh, whether we call it the armed UAV or the loitering munition uh, sector in the in, in the last five years or so, and I therefore think that they have a much greater capability than I would have given them credit for, uh, even a couple of years back. Having seen reports of what Turkish um, uh, loitering munitions did to take apart Russian-supplied uh, air defences in uh, Libya, but also in the uh, Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict, um, I, I'm not going to under, uh, underestimate their capabilities. Ron, uh, I'm going to put uh, one last uh, question to you. Uh, we are already over on the program, but very quickly, um, obviously everybody's concern is about Ukraine. Uh, a lot of NATO countries are now pouring a lot of capability uh, into Ukraine to uh, either help uh, deter Russia or rather exact a higher price on Russia if Russia um, mounts the kind of invasion everybody fears that they will. Some of the stocks that we have on these precision weapons, whether they're anti-tank weapons, uh, are in relatively smaller supply, depending on whose inventory they're coming out of it. The United States has more of them, but the European con- countries tend to have the relatively limited quantities of these. Does this drive an ordering spree from anybody at the end of the day? Uh, Sash, I think this might be more relative, relevant for you in, in part because of more limited European stockpiles. But uh, Ron, do, do you see anything needle moving in the amount of capability that might be going there? Or it's sort of, eh, well, I, I think it's eh for the time being. I mean, it really depends on how, how things play out, right? If indeed um, uh, the, the Russians make a move on, on uh, the Ukraine, um, that obviously will have all kinds of implications. Um, and not just for precision-guided munitions, but uh, so, for example, you know, you know, one of the things that's been floating around out there in the ether for a while is the Poles have been talking about buying Abrams tanks, right? So I would imagine if they were to do this, maybe that you know, ups the, the, the pressure for them to do that. So um, I, I guess I'm looking more kind of through this and, you know, what are the implications for, you know, other, other defense programs with the Russians turning up the heat on their own border with their neighbors? Sash, last word. Uh, I think actually, um, I think you're on the, on the right lines. I think precision guided munitions stocks, uh, there's clearly a ton of 
uh, existing country stocks that are being diverted to Ukraine at the moment. I mean, the, the UK, if you've been, you know, if you are a Flight Radar 24 fan and who isn't, um, the number of C-17 flights from the UK to the Ukraine find very interesting routes. They seem to be avoiding Germany for some reason. Um, and many of those have been full, uh, absolutely full up with NLR anti-tank weapons. I, 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 you know, rough calculation, the UK has diverted at least a quarter and possibly more of this entire stock of NLR to the Ukraine in the last 10 days or so. Um, uh, you know, other weapons of choice, Javelin, clearly. Uh, and I think Javelin has been the sort of, you know, one of the rather nice little secrets uh, of um, Raytheon and uh, Lockheed Martin. You know, Javelin has been the in-demand long-range um, uh, anti-material uh, missile for two decades now. And the volumes have been wonderful. And I think they're going to keep on being wonderful. Saab have got a new NLAW coming out in about 18 months. I think it's going to fly off the shelves, frankly. And you know, their ground combat, their ground combat division or subdivision, which includes the Carl Gustav and the AT4 and so forth, is doing astonishingly well. I think you know that's a and that will continue. And, and, and very briefly for our audience, uh, you are a former uh, soldier, but also one of the best trainers in the British Army. Why is what the Saab, what, what, what is it about what Saab's developing that makes it so attractive from your standpoint? I think the interesting thing about NLOR is that it is a, it, it, it's a fire and forget, it's a genuine fire and forget missile. It has very good algorithms for uh, tracking the target uh, in terms of, uh, you know, its, its motion and speed. And it has even better uh, algorithms for working out uh, where to detonate the warhead and how, i.e. do you attack uh, head-on, do you top attack, do you uh, trigger it with uh, with the magnetic field of the armoured vehicle uh, or something else. And all of that can be done by a soldier who is probably cold, certainly wet and under stress. And can also, uh, right, the Swedish weapon, new Swedish weapon can also be launched from an enclosed space, which makes it interesting. Yes, yes that, I mean, that um, cold, genuine cold launch where the, where the uh, the missile is almost thrown out of the launcher and then uh, the rocket motor ignites uh, 10, 15 meters ahead. Um, that's that's quite hard to do. Um, and firing any anti-armor weapon inside an enclosed space is a, uh, you have to think quite seriously before you do that. As, as usual, as usual, Sash, uh, you capture the understatement of it, right? And you have to point them slightly up, right? And you don't want it, as, as I think in one of our email chains, uh, you noted, you don't want it to catch the top of the window frame. Yeah, it's just embarrassing. <laughs> yes, I think embarrassment is the least of your problems uh, in that context. Thanks very much again for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Hope you guys have uh, a great evening, a great week, and looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for hosting us, Bagger. Yeah, thanks, Bagger. I look forward to it. Yeah, appreciate you doing it, Bagger. Uh, Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.